Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another is fulfilled, has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is, is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly, as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Thanks, Steve. Um, let me explain what's going on first, and then we'll pray, and then we'll look at the scriptures. Um, those of you who've been playing along at home will notice that we jumped ahead to chapter 13. Uh, those of you who haven't noticed that, we've jumped ahead to chapter 13. Um, the reason that we're doing that is uh, a couple of things. Um, First of all, chapter 9 is uh, a very dense argument, and what I anticipate doing with chapter 9 is kind of what we did with previous chapters, where we'll, we'll do a section, and then next week we'll pick up the end of that section and link to the next, and uh, be, because it's a, a pretty detailed argument. So it's going to take us a little time to get through chapter 9. Um, the reason that I jumped ahead to 13 then and uh, putting off, we'll go back to nine and then, then continue on like normal is uh, we are entering what is an extraordinarily contentious political season right now with the election coming up. Uh, when uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg died and the Supreme Court justice seat opened up, I think that ramped our politics up to 11. Um, it, it's, it's a very stressful time right now. And so I wanted, I felt convicted this week as I was thinking about um, our church and, and our response. I thought we need to, um, we need to discuss as a church politics. We need to kind of understand that. And 
Um, there are a number of great texts that we could go to, and, and I'm tempted to go to all of them, but I thought, you know what? We preach expositionally in this church. We go through books of the Bible, and so the, the best thing I thought of was we'll just jump to chapter 13, and we'll talk about politics and Christians and that kind of stuff um, from, from the Bible. So uh, what we're going to talk about is, is Christians and civil authority is really kind of the theme of chapter 13. Um, so when I say that we're going to talk about politics, I want you to understand um, my hope is not to convince you to change your political position. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, I know that there are people who are uh, lean left and lean right in our church, and there's different political positions, and that's fine. It would be really gratifying to me if we came through chapter 13, this discussion, and at the end you said, well, I'm more convinced of my position. Um, I'm not moved from it because you've been thinking about your position scripturally. That would be, that would just really make me happy. So I'm not going to try to push you off that, but I think it's important that we talk about um, politics as a church and how do Christians operate in these things. And so I, I just figured that chapter 13 was the best bet for that. Uh, the other reason that I didn't wait until we got there, um, first of all, like I said, chapter nine is probably going to take us a while. Um, I wanted to do it sooner rather than later because um, we're going to be moving into that, that period quicker than we know it. Uh, but also, next, starting next week, uh, Bob Burris is going to preach for us. He's going to do a four-part sermon series on um, the Lord's Prayer. And so either I did it now or I did it after that. Um, and so uh, I, I just figured we'd go ahead and do it now. So I hope that's okay. Uh, what we'll do is after Bob is done, we'll come back, we'll start on chapter nine and work our way through again. So that's, that's our plan. That's, that's what we're hoping to do. Uh, with that, let me open us in prayer, and then we'll turn to God's word. Uh, Father, you have determined that the best way to do this, Lord, is to have Christ come, um, die for sins, uh, send his Holy Spirit, ascend into heaven, and then we get to just stay here. And uh, the world doesn't change a whole bunch, but um, we have changed and you've given us your gospel. And so, Lord, the struggle for the Christian is how do we live in this world as it is as Christians? And so, Lord, thank you that you haven't just abandoned us and left, told us to figure it out, Lord, that you give us your word, that Holy Spirit, you help us to see and understand. So this morning, Lord, as we turn to your word, as we turn to Romans 13, I pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts that we would hear your word and that we would seek uh, to conform to what you're telling us as we see it as truth, that it is what you have inspired. And uh, Father, I just want to pray for our nation as um, I just can't recall in my almost 60 years seeing a political season as contentious as this. Um, the, um, I think social media is just fueled for that fire. And so, Lord, I pray for our nation. We know, Lord, that you raise nations up and you take them down. Lord, you, you use them to accomplish your purposes. And so we entrust uh, America, but also the, the uh, West, into your hands. And we say, Lord, um, use us as you will. Use this nation as you will and accomplish great things for your name and for your glory. Um, Lord, as Christians living in the West, living here in America, uh, we want to be Christians first and foremost. So, Lord, would you use your word to, to uh, let that happen to us? And, Lord, I pray that in the midst of this contentious politics, Lord, your church would be a third voice, not left, not right, but a third voice. It's a voice that um, is um, calling for righteousness and calling for 
the things, Lord, that we know to be true and right and good. Um, Lord, I want to pray also for uh, the folks in our area, especially with the Bobcat fire and the other wildfires going on. Uh, I know that recently a lot of people on our side of the valley lost their homes uh, due to the fire. And so, Lord, we pray for them that in their being displaced, you would provide and that you would show them your mercy. And Lord, we pray for our firefighters who are working on putting these blazes out. Lord, we pray that you would uh, protect them, that you would bless them with common grace, that uh, they are servants for our good, and that, um, that they would be rewarded for their efforts. And so, Lord, uh, we pray that you'd be with us now in your word. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So, um, politics is such a third rail. Um, do you know what third rail is? If you go to a subway, there's the two rails that the, the tracks that the, sun, the, uh, the subway car rides on, and then there's a third rail, and that's where the high voltage to power it is. And so if you touch the third rail, you die. And so uh, politics can sometimes be a third rail in, uh, in churches. Uh, it can divide churches. It can uh, destroy churches. And uh, so it is really a sensitive, sensitive issue. And um, what I'd like to do real quick is read something from uh, C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters. Um, if you're not familiar with, with Screwtape Letters, what it is is it's a letter, a series of letters from a senior demon to a junior demon. And the senior demon is advising the junior demon how to keep his patient, he calls him, away from Christ and different tactics and different things he does to try to keep this man from becoming a believer in Jesus Christ. So it's framed in a negative framework. And so since uh, Screwtape, the senior uh, demon, is a demon, his enemy is Christ. And so you have to hear it in a negative sense, in, the, in, a, in a backward sense. When he says the enemy, he means Christ. Um, but I thought this was pretty, uh, pretty insightful. So here's, what, here's part of what Screwtape advises his nephew demon. Um, he says, about the general connection between Christianity and politics, our position is more delicate. Certainly, we do not want men to allow their Christianity to flow over into their political life. For the establishment of anything like a really just society would be a major disaster. On the other hand, we do, not, we do want and want very much to make men treat Christianity as a means, preferably, of course, as a means to their own advancement, but failing that as a means to anything, even to social justice. The thing to do is to get a man at first to value social justice as a thing which the enemy demands, and then work him on that uh, I'm, I'm sorry, and then work him onto the stage at which he values Christianity because it produces social justice, for the enemy will not be used as a convenience. Men or nations who think they can revive the faith in order to make a good society might just as well think that they can use the stairs of heaven as a shortcut to the nearest chemist shop. Fortunately, it is quite easy to coax humans round this corner. Only today I have found a passage in a Christian writer where he recommends his own version of Christianity on the grounds that, quote, only such a faith can outlast the death of old cultures and build the birth of new civilizations, end quote. You see the little rift? Believe this not because it's true, but for some other reason. That's the game your affectionate uncle, screw tape. So what he's saying is, 
um, what Screwtape is advising is he's, he's saying we can use politics to keep people from becoming Christians because what they'll do is they'll use Christianity to further their politics. And, and what he said in there is it's a subtle difference. It's just a, a light twist and it works to their advantage. And so in these politically charged times, it's very easy for us to, to have our eyes drift from the fact that we are first and foremost Christians. That is our primary identity is we are Christians first. And only secondarily are we Americans. And then third, we are either Republican or Democrat or independent or, or whatever. But first and foremost, we're Christians. So if we begin to use Christianity as an ends to the means of making America more like we think it is, we have jumbled those, those priorities. And so that's the, the warning that, that uh, Screwtape gives us, is to not fall for those things and try to use Christ, Christianity or Christ as a means to an end. So as we approach this question of, of Christianity and politics, it's a loaded question. And it's really difficult. So what we're going to do this morning as we look through chapter 13 is we're going to look first and foremost, or first at our world, verses 1 through 7. Then we need to take a look at what our mission is, verses 8 through 10. And then we'll look to where our hope is, and that's our future, verses uh, uh, 11 through 14. So verses uh, 1 through uh, 7, are ta Paul's talking about the world. Uh, it starts out, let every person be, in subject, be subject to the governing authorities. Um, if you read chapter 12 and then chapter 14, this seems like it's almost out of place. Uh, let me just read the end of chapter 12 really quickly, just to see, show you how, uh, how this begins to fit together. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those re who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for, so, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And then the very next thing he says is let every person be in subject to the governing authorities. Um, what Paul is doing is he's, he's beginning to explain to us how it is that we're supposed to live in this world. We've been redeemed. And yet our bodies haven't, and neither has this world, if you haven't noticed. And that's where we heard last week about the groaning that goes on. Creation is groaning. We're groaning. Even the Holy Spirit is groaning. Um, and so we're, we're called to live in this time, in this place. And so how do we do that? Well, he's talked about in chapter 12 about how we live with each other and those around us. Um, now he's talking about how do we live under the authority of a civil government? So let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Um, that word subject, um, it's, it's much bigger than it lets on. It's, it's more strong than, than it really appears. Um, and, and what we see is in these first two verses, Paul is setting up his thesis for this whole first seven verses. He's, he's setting a statement, then I'll unpack them. But that word be subject is, is really a strong word. Uh, the best commentary that I've found on Romans is John Murray, and this is how he explains it. He says, the term subjection is one more inclusive than that for obedience. 
It implies obedience when obedience to be obeyed, uh, when ordinances are to be obeyed are in view, but, they are, but there is more involved. So here's, here's the heart of it. Subjection indicates the recognition of our subordination in the whole realm of the magistrate's jurisdiction and willing subservience to that authority. So when he says, be subject to the ruling authorities, at the bare minimum, he means obey the civil laws over you. But like, um, like Murray said, it, it goes far beyond just obeying the ordinances. It goes into a number of other things. So he says, let, uh, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, uh, for there is no authority except for God, right? That's, that's the strength of the command. Uh, so for example, we can externally obey the rules and yet not live in subjection to the authorities by disrespecting them, by speaking evil of them, by treating them poorly. And here's my biblical uh, text for this, my biblical example for this. Paul has uh, finished his third missionary journey. He is heading to, or he goes to Jerusalem and he's in the temple completing a vow. Um, while he's in the temple, a riot breaks out and he's arrested because they're going to tear him apart. So to figure out what's going on, he's brought bef before the, uh, the council, the Sanhedrin. So at the beginning of chapter 23, this is what happens in the ch council chamber. Paul is brought in and it says, and looking intently at the council, Paul said, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all con good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by him said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. So the picture there is Paul is in subjection to the authorities. He doesn't recognize this man who just commanded the people around him to strike him. And so he launches out at him and he launches out at him in a righteous indignation. Um, are you going to strike me even though the law orders that you don't do that? According to the law, you hear somebody before you judge them. I just said that I'm in good conscience and you order me to be struck and he launches at the person. But when he's corrected and he's told, look, this isn't just some dude standing around the council. This is the high priest. The high priest has authority. The high priest is the leader of the people. Paul immediately apologizes. I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. I, I, I'm sorry. And then he quotes scriptures. He quotes Exodus 22, 28. You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So it is really easy these days when you're either in either camp uh, to speak evil of the people in the other camp, of, of the rulers in the other camp. Um, social media just is like gasoline on a fire for this because you're scrolling through social media and you see a meme or, or a quote or a, a short video or something that lampoons and makes fun of the person on the other side. And you kind of snicker and then you repost or um, you get an argument or discussion with somebody and social media just makes this even more flammable and you start saying horrible things about, about the, uh, the people in authority. You are not living in subjection to them. You are, you are speaking evil of a ruler of the people. 
And so do you see this, this subjection is much broader than just uh, knuckling under and, and obeying the rules. It actually has to do with a, with a degree of respect for those that God has appointed over you. Um, so let me close a loophole real quick. Um, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are not yet in office. So they are not in authority over us. So then we can still diss them, right? We can still say, um, um, make up stories or, or inflame things or take things out of context about them, right? Well, I, I would say no, because while that may be following the letter of the law, it certainly isn't hitting the spirit of the law. And, and besides, what did Jesus say you should say about your enemies? Um, so if you desire to say something bad about the, the candidate who's not in office yet, but who's running, um, then it indicates that the, you're opposed to them. They're your enemy. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, love your enemies. So you, you're not being in subjection to the authorities that are, command, that are there or the people who are trying to be in authority. And so that's not the spirit of the law. That's not what we should be doing. Um, so listen to, listen to how Paul explains this. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those will incur judgment. Um, this sounds like it should be really uh, easy to do because God put them in charge, right? God, God established them as those who are in charge. So we should be able to just follow what they say. Um, or you think, well, there's no way that God would have put that person in office in this country. And, and that just can't be right. It can't, it can't possibly go that way. Um, but the truth of the matter is God establishes these people and, and, and all authority has been put there. So think about this for a moment. Um, we live in a representative democracy. We have the privilege of voting for um, all layers of, of um, uh, political office in our nation. And if you look back over the course of human history, um, over time, and over all the different cultures that have existed and all the different people, what you'll find is this last 250, 270 years has been a freak. Um, it's not normally like this, where we have a democracy, where we, we get to have a vote in this. When you look at the broad swath of history, what you see is you see dictators and strongmen and warlords, and those are the ones who ascend to power and who lead. And there's no vote on that. There's no, um, we didn't like the emperor's um, um, policy on, on the poor, and so we're going to go protest. You got killed that way. So the fact that we enjoy this, this freedom now is unusual. It is very weird. It's not normal. And since it's not normal, since it's not the way it's been, when we look back at the scriptures, especially when Paul is discussing how we should, we should work with civil authorities or work under civil authorities, the concept of voting is foreign to this. It, it just isn't there. So here's a question how are we supposed to look at this and understand what it means to live with those civil authorities? How do we vote as, as Christians? How do we consider voting when it's not in the scriptures anywhere? It's foreign to it. Well, that's something that we need wisdom for. And what wisdom is, is wisdom is looking to the scripture, taking a principle for which it doesn't directly address and apply it in a situation that seems to honor it. And so um, when we're looking at this question of voting, we have to recognize that 
human history has not enjoyed that privilege. As a matter of fact, it's most likely that Paul wrote the book of Romans probably around 57 AD. That is before he got to Jerusalem, but toward the end of his third missionary journey. So if he wrote it around 57, then the emperor who was on the throne was Nero. Now, um, we tend to think of Nero as, as exclusively a horrible king, uh, an emperor who was just a beast the whole time. But actually, he didn't start out that way. Um, Nero was okay up until his mother died. So when he first ascended to the throne, um, he was described as a, a generous and a reasonable leader. He eliminated capital punishment. He lowered taxes and he allowed slaves to bring complaints against their masters. He supported the arts and athletics above the gladiator games, and, and he gave to other cities in crisis. So at the beginning, he was probably pretty good, and, and his mother died around 62, so when Paul was writing in 57, um, Nero might have been a pretty decent guy on the throne at that point. Now, he's still a pagan, he's still got issues, but he was not too terrible. So what happens? Well, his mother was murdered around 55. Um, and so what, after 55, that's when things begin to descend. Um, he begins to, to engage in a hedonistic lifestyle um, that was not only self-indulgent, but in, in some tyranny. And he had spent exorbitant amounts of money. So I'm sorry, his, his mom died at 55. He starts his downward slide. Paul's writing in 57. So now you've got this questionable guy on the throne who started out pretty good, but now he's getting bad. Um, around 62, there's accusations of treason against Nero in the Senate, and um, he begins to harshly persecute his, uh, his um, enemies, including disloyal citizens, uh, has rivals executed, and, and that kind of stuff. 64 is when Rome burned. Uh, just as an aside, you know, we say Nero fiddled while Rome burned. First of all, the fiddle wasn't invented until about 800, so he didn't fiddle, he played the lute. Second of all, he was actually 35 miles away from uh, uh, Rome at that time, so he probably didn't stand on the roof and play either. But however it happened, whatever his role in that fire was, the, the fire of Rome in 64 AD raged for 10 days, and it decimated 75% of the city. And what happened after that was Nero needed a scapegoat. He needed somebody to blame, and so he blames this new religious sect, these, these Jewish sect called the Christians. And what came of that is Christians then are being persecuted, wrapped in animal skins and, and fed to dogs where dogs are tearing them apart. Um, he, the, he's taking Christians and rack, wrapping them in pitch and putting them as torches in his, his garden. He, he begins to feed gladiators to lions, um, or to Christians to the lions in the gladiatorial games. So it's really horrible. Um, so when Paul wrote, he probably wasn't terrible, but he was heading in that direction. When Paul wrote, was it true that we should be in subjection to authorities because God established them? Yes, it was. Was it true in 55 or uh, in, in 64 when the, when the fire happened and the persecutions that came after that? Yeah, it was true then too. Was it true in 1200 AD um, during the Middle Ages that God put the people on the thrones who he wanted to, and that people should be in subjection to them. Yes, it was. Was it true in 1776 when the uh, English colonies revolted against the king? Yeah, it was true then too. 
And so one of the big questions about the American Revolution is, was that a, violent, a violation of Romans 13, uh, throwing off the authority that was over them? Um, that's a question I am not going to answer. Um, is it true in 2020? Uh, will it be true in 2021, depending on who ascends to, uh, who, who wins the presidency? It, it's true no matter if your party is, on the, uh, uh, is in the White House or not. It's true no matter what. And so what we have to do is we have to show that deference, that subjection to those authorities, whether we like them or not. That includes obeying the laws. It includes speaking truthfully and accurately about those in the office. It, in, it includes a degree of honor of that office because when you look at the president, what you have to see is God put that person in the White House. Now, he did it through us voting and in some wonderful way, which we'll begin to explore in chapter nine when we go back there, God is sovereign over free human decisions and accomplishes his purposes. And so even in a, in a representative democracy, that person is in the White House because God has determined that they need to be. That person is in the Senate because God has put him there. That person is the governor because God established that person. And so what we have to do is we have to figure out how as Christians, we honor what it says in Romans 13, as far as being in subjection to the authorities and, and that kind of stuff. And at the same time, being good citizens and exercising our right to vote. And, and how should we do that? We'll get to that. We'll get some information on that and help unpack that as we get a little further in. But I just want to help you understand, this is a difficult question. It's not an easy one to deal with. And um, just as one more aside here, um, it's a difficult question, and you can see there's no clear answer, and I said that it takes wisdom. Wisdom is taking what the scripture says and applying it in ways that it didn't directly apply it. So since there's wisdom involved, there's going to be differences of opinion. When you look across Christianity, there's a bunch of differences of opinion of how we comply with Romans 13. How do we obey it? And so if someone doesn't agree with you on, a, on that subject, it's good and it's best to give them some leeway because we're not operating off direct commands, we're operating off of uh, principles. Um, so we have to recognize that the authority that there has been placed there by God. Where Paul goes next is he says, um, do you want, uh, would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive approval for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So why do we have civil authority in the world? Why is there civil authority at all? Um, what is it there for? Well, I think if you look back at creation, there, there's something we call creation ordinances, things that God established when he made the world and they're just there. So, for example, marriage is a creation ordinance because he created Adam and then he created Eve and he put them together and, and Adam says, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. That was creation ordinance of marriage. And it applies all across the world. There is the creation ordinance of work. God took Adam and put him in the garden to work it. Work is not a curse. Work is part of being in creation. God told us to be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the earth. Now, that's a creation ordinance. I would argue that Sabbath is a creation ordinance because God created the world in six days and he rested on the seventh. 
he established that there should be a period of work, but he didn't put us here and just say, now toil until you die. He said he established this pattern of rest. And so a Sabbath is a creation ordinance, this idea of rest in the middle of our work. So there's those things. Government is not necessarily, or at least not directly, a creation ordinance. So why do we have government? Why is it there? Um, it's there because I think it is an extension of one of the creation ordinances. God created Adam, and he told him the rule of the garden, don't eat from that tree. He had Adam name all the animals, and he didn't find anybody suitable to be with him, and so God created a helpmate for him, a partner. He created his wife and brought them together, and together now they're, they're very good. Um, Adam was given a set of rules, and so he had a role to play in the relationship with his wife. His responsibility was to tell his wife, this is the rule of the garden, and don't do that. He either didn't, or he didn't correct her when she got it wrong. And so right there, you see a violation of his role of authority given to him, that he blew it. He, he, he messed it up. When his wife became very confused by the serpent, he didn't step in. Look at the family going forward. Um, one of the things God says is, um, that um, when he established Mary, he said that a man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife. So there's this idea of him being under his mother and father under their authority, and then he goes and he forms his own family, and that expands. So where I'm going with this is, this is, if you take that and expand it out as humanity is beginning to fill the world, now it goes from just the family, which early on could have been numerous children, uh, to these families now begin to establish cities. We hear in chapter four of Genesis. And so somebody needs to be in charge of those cities. So I think civil government is an extension of those things. And God had a plan for it, and he had a purpose for it from, from the very beginning. It was going to happen. It was going to come about. Um, so what he tells us here is that um, the role of civil government, the, the job that they're supposed to have is to... Um, to reward what's good and to punish what's bad. Um, so it, Paul then says, well, do you want to have no fear of that authority? Then do what's good and, and you'll receive his approval um, because you should be doing that. That's what God established that authority to do. So one of the difficulty, one of the difficult questions in this is uh, what happened? How do you define what's good? Well, a lot of things will get right out of the scriptures. As a matter of fact, we'll come to some in the next section. Um, a lot of them we can get right from the scriptures. We know what's good. It is not good to murder somebody. And so the role of the civil government should be to uh, find, arrest, and if they're guilty of, of first-degree murder, execute murderers. That's the role of the government. Um, that's, that's how they enforce what's, what's or uh, they punish what is bad. Um, but what about what is good? Well, the government then should be supporting and, and helping out things that are de determined to be good. Now, that's where we get into the political situation we're in now. What's good? Is a nuclear family good? Is, um, is work rather than welfare good? Is it best if you have a job or is it best that the government continue to provide for you if you can't get a job for as long as it takes? And, and that's where the question comes in and that's where it becomes difficult. But at its root, at, at its core, what the government is supposed to do, it, its purpose in, in being created is to reward what's good and punish what's bad. And, and that's why we have government. So our role as Christians in that is we should be looking at people who are running for office and asking the question, 
will they accomplish that purpose? Because in God's providence, we have the blessing of being involved in that discussion. Um, 500 years ago, we wouldn't have had that privilege. We wouldn't vote on those things. Um, the, the American experiment is, is a freak of nature. It's a, a freak of human society. And so it, it, it's, it stands out as odd. Um, but at its heart, it's supposed to, it's trying to do what, what God tells us to do too, because in the Declaration of Independence, uh, one of the core things is when they say that we believe that all men are created equal and that their creator has endowed them with certain inalienable rights, including life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We have perhaps imperfectly implemented that, but that's been the goal. And doesn't that sound like what's going on in chapter 13 is promote what's good and, and, and uh, uh, punish what's bad. So that's the goal of civil government. So Christian, as you're looking at who you're going to vote for, those are the kind of questions you need to settle in your mind and in your heart. The person that I'm going to cast a vote for, will they do what, what Paul has told us the role of government is here? Or will they do something else? Um, and do I agree with their version of what's good and what's bad? So that, that's difficult. That takes a lot of prayer and a lot of thought. So what else does uh, Paul have to say about them? Well, so far, we have been just told to be in utter subjection and um, to avoid God's wrath because the government will come down upon us. I know all of us are thinking, yeah, but well, what happens if or what if? And we'll get to that now. So verse 6. For because of this, you pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed. Uh, taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. So first of all, Paul is explicit. Pay your taxes. Um, you don't have to like it. You don't have to celebrate it. But you do have to pay it. Um, taxes is something that is a part of uh, the, the function of a, a civil government. They need to raise revenue to take care of the things that they're supposed to be taken care of. Um, so taxes is just a fact of life. Uh, taxes in that time, though, uh, there, there's, he, he mentions two different things. He says taxes and revenue. And, and what is revenue talking about? Well, taxes is speaking of the category of personal taxes like property tax or the temple tax or, or that kind of stuff. These were direct things that you had to pay. And the idea was you paid for having the privilege of being under Roman rule. Uh, so that's why they charge these taxes. Um, Roman citizens actually, you know, if you were actually a Roman citizen, you were usually exempt from those kinds of taxes, property tax, temple tax, that kind of stuff. Um, but what's revenue? Well, revenue is something that's called an indirect tax, kind of like a sales tax or tolls on toll roads and that kind of stuff. And uh, so those were the things that were required to be paid. And, um, and they're not comfortable, they're not, they're not happy, but that's what it requires to make this stuff work. Um, actually, a little side note, Nero had considered at one point abolishing indirect taxes, that would be the, the um, uh, sales tax or, or tolls or that kind of stuff. Um, he considered doing that, but then he changed his mind, unfortunately. Um, so that's what we have to do. We have to, in our subjection to the authorities, we have to pay the taxes. Now, the other thing he says is that we should uh, give um, respect to whom respect is owed and honor to whom honor is owed. And here's where you get to the yabbats, the, uh, well, what abouts? So, for example, in Jesus' day, the, um, the emperor 
um, depending on who was on the throne, there were a couple of different emperors on the throne, minted coins. The, the coins that were minted belonged to the emperor, but he let them out to the, to the economy so that the economy would flow. And that's why it had his picture on it. So in Matthew 22, beginning in verse 15, we run into this situation where the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus. And so here's what happens. The Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? So do you see what they're saying? They're, putting, they're trying to set Jesus up. They say, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? What's your politics here, Jesus? Do we pay him or not? So if you say we pay him, then you appear to be to the general public um, uh, um, uh, somebody who sides with Caesar. You're, you've caved in. You've, you've gone over to the other side. And so the public won't follow him. But if he says, no, don't pay taxes to Caesar, now he's a political threat to Caesar. And what will happen is the, if the word spreads and people stop paying their taxes, they're coming after him. So they think they've got him. Either way he answers, yes or no, they're going to they're gonna nail him because they're thinking in strictly political categories. The politics of the situation have made it impossible. So here's how Jesus responds. But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is on this? And they said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. So do you see what Jesus did here is he didn't answer the way they thought they had trapped him into. Yes, you pay taxes, or no, you don't pay taxes. Instead, what he says is he, he pretty much says what Paul is saying here. Give to the ruling authority what they are owed. Pay taxes, but you may not honor them in a way that they're not worthy of being honored. So for example, Jesus says, give me a denarius. He didn't have one. Um, he, he wasn't a rich man. He wasn't interested in the money. He, he takes the denarius and he shows it to somebody. He says, whose inscription and whose picture? And they say Caesar's. Well, what was the inscription? Um, there were different, uh, different um, inscriptions for different emperors, but for Caesar Augustus, it said, Caesar Augustus, the divine father of the country. Caesar claimed in that coin to be God, the God and, and the father of the country. And if the coin was minted under Tiberius, it said Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. Now Tiberius is claiming to be the son of God. So when, when we give to the ruling authorities the honor and the respect that they're due, you have to remember there is a certain respect and honor they are not due, even if they claim it for themselves. Caesar Augustus could claim to be divine, and yet he's not. So Jesus says, give him his money. It's his stupid coin. Give it back to him. But don't you dare honor him as God. He's not. He's not worthy of that honor. Give that honor to God the Father. What if it's Tiberius? Tiberius, the son of the divine. Well, it's his coin. Give it back to him if he wants it. But don't you dare honor him as the son of God. That, that is a violation of this principle. So these are the yeah, but questions. How do we do this when the civil government oversteps their authority? 
when they overstepped their bounds because Paul did it. He, he, he rebuked the, the, um, the um, oh, I'm sorry, not Paul. I mean, Peter, right? So Peter in chapter four, Peter and John go to the temple and they're preaching Jesus Christ and they get arrested. And so 418, so they called them and charged them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. So in a very respectful way, Paul or Peter uh, looks at the, 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 um, the temple guard or the, the um, council and says, look, we've been told by God we have to do this. So now you decide whether you think we should obey you or God, because we're going to do what we have to do. So it's done in a very respectful way that he paid honor to the council by not railing at them or thundering at them. But at the same time, he didn't give them more honor than they were due. They couldn't tell him, don't you preach Jesus. And so that's, that's that line that you have to obey. And it, it's not always quite so clear. And it can take great prayer and great insight and great wisdom to try to decide how are we going to do that. Um, so we've mentioned this a couple of times under this lockdown under COVID, um, the, this health emergency. There are churches who are blatantly ignoring the lockdown and saying, we're going to meet anyway. Um, and then there are churches like us who are saying, we're going to meet online. Um, which is the right decision? Well, that's hard to do. But what we have to say as the church is we have to look at the civil government and say, we cannot not worship God. And we cannot modify our worship service to fit what you think is right for whatever reason you have, even if it's a noble, honorable reason, like we don't want a bunch of people to get sick and die. Great. But what we have to do as the church is say, you may not dictate to us what God has dictated to us. God has said we should meet. And the tradition of the church since its inception has been to meet weekly on the Lord's Day on Sunday. We're going to continue to meet on the Lord's Day on Sunday. The Lord says that we must preach the word. Um, therefore, every Sunday, we're going to have the word preached. God says, sing to one another hymns, songs, and spiritual songs. Therefore, when we meet, we are going to sing. You, you, the government can't come in and tell us, shorten your sermon. Don't sing together. Uh, those kinds of things. We will find a way. What we've done is we found a way to do it through Zoom. It's not ideal. It's not going to be the long-term solution. But for right now, this is what we, we're going to do. So that's that rule that honor, we will pay honor to, um, to the city of Lancaster, the county of Los Angeles, to the state of California, the honor that they are due. But our first allegiance, like I said at the beginning, our first allegiance is we are subjects of Jesus Christ. That's where we begin. Now, as Americans, we will honor that, but we will not, um, we will not sacrifice our, our citizenship under Christ to follow those rules. And so it, it can be difficult. It can be really hard to do. And by the way, we're not unique in this. Peter and John did that in the temple. Look at the book of Daniel. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are all Jews placed high in a position of authority within the, um, the Persian government, within the Babylonian government. And they get in trouble all the time. In chapter two, uh, it, uh, Daniel has to say this. Listen to what Daniel prays in chapter 2, um, beginning in verse 20. 
Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and season. He, he removes kings and he sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what it is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give praise and thanks, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what, you, what we ask of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. So in, in his prayer, Daniel says, he, he could look at Nebuchadnezzar and say, you're only there because God put you there. And so how can he function in this pagan environment? How can he be an official in a pagan um, uh, governmental structure? Because he looks at Nebuchadnezzar and says, you're there because God put you there. Later, Nebuchadnezzar you know, gets a little full of himself, builds a nice big idol and tells everybody to bow down and worship. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego won't do it. They, they will honor the king. They will do everything. They even adopt the names that he's given them. But when it comes to the issue of worship, they say, we won't cross that line. And so um, uh, it, it comes to Nebuchadnezzar's attention that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego won't obey. And he, he chews them out and they answer him. And they said to the king, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the fiery burning furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden idol that you have set up. So they, they looked the king in the face and they have obeyed in everything up to this point. That's how they climbed up to the position they're in the authority of the, uh, the government. But on this issue, they say, king, we, we can't obey. You do what you think is right. If you think it's proper to throw us in the fiery furnace, throw us in. We will not serve your gods, period. One more story from Daniel, the famous Daniel in the lion's den. The, the people who Daniel worked with didn't like him. And so they set up a rule. You can't pray to anybody but to the king uh, during this time period. Daniel goes home, opens the, the blinds of his house, looking toward Jerusalem, and he prays. He, he wasn't going to obey that command. And so they, they bring the rule to the king, and the king says, oh, man, it's, it's the rule of the Medes and the Persians. I can't change that. And so he throws Daniel into the lion's den. He says, Daniel, may your God save you. And that's exactly what happened. The next morning, Daniel comes out, and he's safe. He wouldn't bow on that one thing. He had really climbed. Daniel was way up there in that, in that government, but he wouldn't obey. And so that's how we have to respond. Deference, respect, honor, taxes, um, submission. But we also have to say there's a point, oh, government, where you may not go. And so that, that is our role in this world, um, under the authority of the world, until Jesus comes. So now let's take a look at our mission, the next portion. Verses 8 through 10. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For the one who loves uh, for the one who loves another fulfills the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in these words. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Pay your taxes, pay honor, but above all, our mission is not to 
do anything except for to love. That's how he ended chapter, thir- or chapter 12. That's how chapter 13 goes. So under that banner of, of following what the, the local magistrates demand of us, what he tells us is, owe no one anything. So in the immediate context is pay your taxes. Don't owe your taxes, pay them. But it's much broader than that. Oh, every, oh, no one, anything. Don't be in debt to anyone except this one thing that you owe everybody, and that is to love each other. Uh, for the one who loves has fulfilled the law. So notice he says to love each other. He's talking about the church here. He's not talking about society in general, but he is talking about how the church responds to each other as we are commanded to love each other and to owe each other nothing except that. That's why Jesus said, they will know you're my disciples. They, those outside, will know you. You who are my disciples, they'll know it by your love for each other. That's what will stand out. That's what will make us look different to the world. That's what will make us be a puzzle to the world, is if we love each other. And then he says, um, if we love each other, we have fulfilled the law. The law is summed up in these two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. So if we're doing the first because of the work that God has done in us to justify us, to sanctify us, to fill us with his spirit, to pour the love of God abroad in our heart, we're, we're working on that first one. But the second one is what we do for others, those around us. And so we, we have this love for each other. In that way, we're fulfilling the law. Now, when I say that, don't forget justification. We're not fulfilling the law in the perfect, right, absolute way. It comes after we're justified. This is what the, the changed life, the sanctified life looks like as we're beginning to, to grow in those things. And then he quotes the Ten Commandments in verse 9. Uh, You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment. Um, So he quotes the Ten Commandments. Do you notice that he quotes the second table of the law? You remember when we looked at the Ten Commandments, I said there were uh, theologians have talked about them in two tables. The first four commandments are Godward focused. Uh, You shall love the Lord your God. Um, You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. Um, um, you shall not have an idol and, uh, and uh, keep the Sabbath. Remember to keep the Sabbath. Those are Godward-focused um, ordinances. And the rest of the Ten Commandments are aimed at other people. Um, uh, don't murder, don't steal, don't lie, don't covet. Um, those kinds of things. Honor your mother and father. So it's interesting how Paul quotes the second table of the law. And um, I think what he's doing here, um, if I can just kind of put this as a, a little bit of an aside, um, the first table of the law, though governments have tried to enforce it, is not enforceable governmentally. How do you pass a law that will make people love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind? How, how do you pass a law that, that people will love the Lord? That, that's, that's not something you can actually accomplish. Then again, we run into that problem with the 10th commandment. How do you pass a law that tells people they can't covet? Um, but if you pass a law that says you, you must love God, um, it doesn't change the heart. Um, you can get them to not take the Lord's name in vain, in other words, not swear. But when we looked at the Ten Commandments, I said that taking the Lord's name in vain was much broader than that. It would be identifying yourself as a person of God and then not living that way. Um, you, you can't pass a law to make that happen. Um, you can certainly outlaw idols, but the problem is our heart generates idols. That can't be banned. Uh, We fall in love with things of the world that we shouldn't really fall in love with. And boy, you can certainly enforce the Sabbath. You can can 
impose blue laws and say nothing can be open, but does that mean that they're going to actually fulfill the Sabbath? Look in Isaiah. What does it mean to fulfill the Sabbath? Is to have mercy and justice on other people. So you can't do that. that that's just not what the, the government can do, but they can do the tablet, the second table, tab, uh, table of the law. They can outlaw murder. They can outlaw stealing. They can, they can outlaw adultery and those kinds of things. So civil government can only go so far, but it can't take us all the way there. Um, what we're commanded then to do is under the civil government is to love, is to express love. And what will happen is if, if we're living consistent, um, we may occasionally get in trouble for doing what's right, but more often than not, people will say there's something different about those folks. So First Peter chapter 3, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you, are, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for the reason for your hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that, uh, if that should be God's will than for doing evil. So really, when it comes to it, the, the church's political platform is to love, is to love our neighbors as ourselves, to love our God. And, and that's going to look different in different ways for different people at different times. Um, and that includes, like I mentioned earlier, loving your enemies. Uh, so love the saints in the church. Uh, love your neighbor. Who is my neighbor? You know that. Jesus gave us a parable that said, yeah, um, loving your neighbor means pretty much everybody. Um, so how do you take that? Well, Tim Keller recently had a, a post that I thought was really helpful. When it comes down to it within the church, we may not agree on what it looks like to love our neighbor. And so this is how uh, Keller explains it. He said, the Bible binds my conscience to care for the poor, but it does not tell me the best practical way to do it. Any, any particular strategy, high taxes in government service versus low taxes in private charity, may be good and wise and may be even somewhat inferred from other things the Bible teaches, but they're not directly commanded, and therefore we cannot insist all Christians, as a matter of conscience, follow one or the other. The Bible binds my conscience to love the immigrant, but it does not tell me how many legal immigrants to admit to the United States every year. It does not exactly prescribe an immigration policy. And he goes on, so what he's saying is, is there's, there's room for difference of opinion on this. Um, even within the church. So if you don't agree with somebody in the church on a particular issue, immigration or welfare or some other way of dealing with the social problems, what's our mission? To love one another. And, and the church is the perfect place to do that. We have all been redeemed by Christ. We are all Jesus people. And so we can love each other in, in a very special way, even when we disagree. And in our political environment, seeing people who don't agree politically, loving and caring for each other and meeting together is a huge testimony to the power of Christ in this world. So let me skip ahead. We'll go to at the end here. Uh, what is our future? And our future is the hope. Paul says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So let's cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as
was in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So here's the thing. He begins by saying, besides, you know the time, the hour has come for us to wake from sleep. Salvation is nearer now than it was when we first believed. So where we started was creation, and creation got messed up by Adam and Eve, and now it groans. Um, and so part of what is messed up in creation is us. And part of what comes out of us is going to be messed up. Our political systems um, all these things that we create, these systems that we've established, because we're sinners, we're going to build sin into them. They're going to be broken. They're not going to function perfectly. So why is the world a mess? Because we messed it up. Uh, we messed it up with our personal sin. We messed it up with our selfishness. We messed it up with our indifference. We messed it up with our politics. Um, it, it, there has been no great political system ever that was perfect and would work in every way. Um, but here's the good news is Jesus, uh, between the fall and Jesus' return, God has established these human governments in perfect, broken, wrong-headed as they are, but they're not the end goal. They are not how it will be in the end. It's not God's plan that sinful human beings rule over sinful human beings. And so the promise that we have is we're looking forward to when the king comes, when the king who, who will arrive, the the saying is the night is far gone, the day is at hand. We're anticipating and looking forward to Christ's return. And, and American Christian understand when Jesus returns, we won't vote for him. Jesus will return as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The, the political process that we've invented to keep America running will be gone. Um, the, the political process that makes Iran function will be gone. There will not be all of these other human fallen broken systems Jesus will return as the king. And the great news is he will be the ultimate, benevolent, loving, self-sacrificing despot who will rule the world, not for his own glory and his own purpose, but for our good, which brings his own glory and his own purpose. It's the only way the two are intertwined. There's no other way to do that. And so we do this by walking in this together. He says, let us cast off these things. Let us walk properly. Um, as we're anticipating the return of the king, we cast off the works of darkness and we put on the uh, works of light because we're waiting for Jesus to return. Um, what that means is in the meantime, between Jesus' first coming and his second, we're left behind. We're left here to do something. And what we're left to do is we're called to be ambassadors. Second uh, uh, Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new heavens has come. And this is from God and through Christ, who's reconciled us to himself and given us a ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, Christ, or in Christ, God was reconciling the word to himself, not counting the trespass against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We're ambassadors. What the church is, what the church functions as, is not an outpost for political party A or B. It stands as an ambassador. It's an embassy for God in this world. Um, there's a book I'm reading right now called uh, How the Nations Rage by Jonathan Liam. And one of the things he describes I thought was really helpful in this um, is, uh, is that idea of an embassy. He says, the U.S. Embassy in Buenos Aires 
cannot command the forces in uh, the police forces in Argentina. The U.S. Embassy in Beijing cannot give orders to the military of China. Yet both embassies represent the full power of the United States and the military. An ambassador speaks for the president. Walk into any embassy building and they will say that you are standing on the soil of that nation. It represents one nation inside another nation. The church too represents one nation inside another. Every member is a citizen and an ambassador of Christ's kingdom and holy nation. So we are, as the church, ambassadors from this other country. Inside the church is holy ground. It is God's territory. It is, it is where he's called us to be. And we don't get to command uh, the, the, the um, foreign powers around us. In our situation, we get to vote for them. Vote as a Christian. Vote and ask if that person that I'm casting my ballot for, will they carry out the mission that I believe that the church has, has been told to do? Will they carry out the mission that God has given to civil authorities? Will they reward good and punish evil? And that, that is how the Christians should be thinking about politics. So as we go into this political season, please be considering these things. Um, speak with respect and honor. Don't uh, revile the, the leader who is appointed over you. Um, analyze the situation, the policies, the practices, and, and understand them in light of Christianity. And above all, understand that you're doing this from a position not of dictated words saying, this is how a government must operate, but wisdom. What's the best way for the government to deal with the issues that are facing us today? And then go and vote your conscience, an informed conscience informed by the word, an informed conscience informed by prayer. So if just in closing thought on this section, um, as a believer, as a Christian, you are not allowed to disagree with what the Bible says. So where Paul says, you must be in subjection to the authorities over you. As a Christian, you do not get to say, I will be in subjection to the authorities I like, but the ones that I don't like, I'm going to revile and, and treat poorly. You don't get to do that. That's God's word. God, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, had Paul write that. Now, do you get to disagree with me? Well, if I'm not clearly articulating something from, from Scripture, if I'm not bringing it directly from Scripture and quoting it to you, you can disagree with me, and that's okay. Um, but make sure you're disagreeing with me and not with the scripture. Um, and and um, with that, let me close us in prayer and ask for God's wisdom in this, this uh, election cycle. Lord, um, you have established civil government in all its varied forms from very good to very evil. And they have accomplished your purposes throughout the history of mankind. And so, Lord, as we look forward in this election cycle, as we look towards November, towards January, towards 2021 and on, Lord, we want to confess and acknowledge whoever winds up in the White House, Lord, you had put them there, whether it's for the good of the nation or for the punishment of the nation. Whatever it is, Lord, it is to accomplish your purposes. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be part of that process and helpful in a good way. Lord, grant all of us wisdom in politics. Grant all of us care in our words and our speech. Lord, may we live in subjection, not reviling the, the rulers over us, but at the same time, Lord, hold them accountable for what they do. And um, thank you for placing us in a, in a representative democracy where we get to participate in that. Help us to do it as Christians, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.